Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Whether it's Kroger Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Kroger has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Choose from a great selection of digital coupons and use them up to five times in one transaction. Check our app for details. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to Breaking Geek Radio, the podcast, the premier flagship and international podcast of LRM Online and the Genreverse Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, and unfortunately, the Latastic Four is scattered to the four winds and unable to come together this weekend to record a brand new podcast for all of you. Sorry about that. What's more, I have additional bad news. Uh, by the time you hear these lines, I'll be gone. I'm in the process of moving to South Korea but I'm hoping to be back before you'll actually miss me. In the meantime, I had an opportunity to speak with Nico Muley. He's a Grammy-nominated composer of the original score from Apple TV's runaway series, Pachinko. I hope you have fun listening. Also, stay tuned after the interview, and I'll give you my thoughts and impressions on the new Disney Pixar film, Lightyear. Recording is in progress, I'm being told. All right. Um, I can handle the introduction. Uh, not a big deal, unless unless you have a specific one that you like to do. I don't know. I no? can say my name, my name, and I, yeah, I mean, what, what would I do? Like my name and height or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of interview. We need to know these things. I don't. I don't know what kind of show this is. But like, <laughs> all right. So hold on a sec. Sorry, Zoom is doing something weird. Oh, is it like your internet connection is unstable or whatever? It's no, it's something popped up and won't let me do another thing. It's all right. Forget it. No worries. Anyway, I've got it. I can work this out. Cool. All right. So I'm Brandon Jones. I'm here for LRM Online and the Genreverse Podcast Network. I'm here with Nico Muley, and we're going to have a conversation about his hit series, Pachinko, which he's the composer of, right? That is correct. All right. It's very super exciting. Um, also, you, you've just been nominated for a Grammy. Um, so that was for the piece that you did with the San Francisco Symphony uh, through line, correct? Yeah. All right. Um, very good. I'm very excited to talk to you about both of them. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to start with was, I, it's my understanding that both of these pieces were composed during the pandemic. Um, correct. So can you talk to me about those challenges and how you overcame those? Sure. Um, so in in terms of recorded well in terms of all music there's there are a couple things going on there's a sort of emotional level of sure. this being a complete disaster and a nightmare for everyone no matter what is happening um there, and there you know even if if one oneself is doing okay you know your community ne- isn't necessarily and it's a really it was a horrible feeling for a really long time sure. but then also there are these intersecting uh logistical 
complications. So when we made Throughline, which which is essentially it's a it's a piece of music that was designed for COVID restrictions. It involves the San Francisco Symphony and a series of soloists. The soloists were were, were all recorded wherever they were they were at, which is to say, you know, Helsinki, uh, Berlin, um, you know, outside of Helsinki, oh, sure. uh, New York, LA. The, you know, everyone everyone was everywhere, and the orchestra was in the orchestra hall, but all recorded separately according to COVID regulations. So six or okay. nine feet apart, all the woodwinds had to be had to be um, not just solo in the hall, but playing on top of the thing that you put in your house so your dog pees there and not anywhere else. Okay, um, yeah. Which just apparently I'm sure was like a, legal, a legal requirement from the musicians union or something, you know. So, so basically both of these projects were done with the, you know, conf- competing and conflicting sets of regulations attendant to not just COVID, but everyone's mental state um, during, <laughs> during the same. Okay. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine you talked about emotions. They certainly must've been high uh, jumping all over the place because of the pandemic. Um, specifically with Pachinko, Suhu talked about the fact that it took four years to get this project um, into fruition and bring it to the screen. At what point did you come into the project um, and what kind of conversations did you all have about composing this work? So I, I came in, Sue called me about uh, a couple months before they started filming um, and I learned two things very quickly. <laughs> um, no, number one, the amount of care that had gone into the adaptation just on the level of the script was incredibly intense and way, way more um, nuanced and um, interesting and engaging in a simple like translation of the book to the, to the, um, to the, uh, screen and it was so it really wasn't it wasn't just like they took the book and just took the words and 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 put it in order it was complete reimagining of how that story and uh, and other stories could be told um that was the first thing I learned the second thing I learned was that Sue had this this very very fleshed out zoomed out vision of how the of how the score was going to function um which is amazing and, yeah. and and rare, like it wasn't it. What we there was a huge amount that we did discover together, but there was also a huge amount that she had kind of done a lot of the city planning about how things were gonna were gonna interact. Um, so the convers the initial conversations were actually quite um, quick. You know, we talked about it a lot. It was intense, but it wasn't. It it was you know a, a, a fast conversation um, where it became clear that this is going to work. Okay. Um, and I know you've read the book now. Had you read it prior to uh, beginning to score the novel? Or I'm sorry, score the series? Yes. Yeah, I had. Okay. Because um, there was a moment where I feel like everyone was reading it. And, you know, it was it was a kind of, it was like, and if you hadn't read it, then Obama was like, you got to read it. And everyone was like, okay, fine. Right. So there, there was a kind of, um, yeah, and I read it. And, and, and I was, I was when, I, when I read it, I was struck with how little about that, that kind of slice History. of of yeah. history I, I knew and and not just how little about it but that how relevant that is to so much that's going on right now in in you know everything from art to you know geopolitical issues to what's going on in North Korea to you know it's right. it's, it's an incredibly relevant thing that um that you know we as Americans uh in which we're weirdly implicated in so much of it but we were taught nothing about it. Right. 
And you talked I, about your own. I, I don't know. I don't know what your what your high school journey was, but like I, my, mine was definitely. And and I went to a really really good school. I mean, learned yeah. a lot about a lot of other things. But this this was something that really fell under the radar. Yeah. Um, so I don't recall learning about it in history. I know that in terms of. So I know that you've talked about. Um, like the Korean War and the Japanese occupation as being some of your um, blind spots as far as history. I think for me, the only thing that I had read um, was this kind of war, which is like this, it's almost a tome about the Korean War itself. Um, So I guess what I'd like to ask you about that is, is then as a composer, how do you overcome that challenge of, of scoring something that is, that is true historically? Do you feel like that's something that you have to just, digest a bunch of knowledge about to be able to score that properly? Yes and no. Um, The interesting, I think if, I think if I were, I think I would not score a documentary about this because it's not my story to tell. Um, What the whole project of this adaptation was, was I think translating the book and translating the stories behind the book for, for an audience that, you know, includes descendants of and the actual people in, involved in those in those stories, but also for a much 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 wider audience. So that for me was the key to not have making it feel like I, I was obliged to perform a kind of verisimilitude. But also I wouldn't sure. have done that. Okay? Like it, it it wouldn't. I think it would be deeply inappropriate for someone who wasn't. You know, I feel like what you would need is someone my age whose grandparents were Korean and went to Japan. Sure. You know, I mean, I think that's that would be the only way to do it. Um, okay. And and um, so it's a combination of totally like I I I definitely wanted to know what was going on in, in as in as rich a way as, as as possible, but also I wanted to treat it like these are people that we can, can all relate to, and that sure. these are people, you know, not not just on a kind of when you watch TV, it's they're obviously made up people but you know sure. they're, 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 that were there with it as a piece of drama and that were there with the overall thing as a piece of art um so that that was my that was my approach and it goes without saying that that you know that was a conversation that we had to have um very very early on was sure. that i was not interested in doing any kind of musical appropriation like there was not going to be like a shakuhachi coming down the runway Sure. Like, it's like that's not like so that, that those were I mean the, to, to, you know it was something, something that something that we talked about and then agreed that we were not going to talk about it again got it um as an as a musical layperson what seemed daunting to me watching Pachinko is the fact that this is a series that crosses uh countries and generations and timelines as a composer that seems I feel like that has to be daunting. You tell me if I'm wrong, but like, how did you navigate that? Okay. How did you navigate that? <laughs> well, one of the first, one of the first things that, that I decided with very much in consultation with Sue was that we were not going to do a, um, uh, this time period has this music, this time period has sure. this music kind of vibe because it, it shuttled too quickly to make that make sense. It was just, and there were so many, there were so many moments when it, did this where, or, or even more <laughs> did, you know, sure. there, there are so, so many moments where you, you were not just linking time periods, but you were, you were linking five time periods and the same person in different times of her life. And, you know, there's a lot going on. And so having made that decision that we were, that we're, we weren't going to assign that, that time was, beca- was going to become in, in a sense irrelevant to the score. Um, 
that then the next step was to say, okay, then what, what is going to bind these things together? And the thing that, the thing that I tried to do was to write pieces early on, which belonged to characters in specific situations. So I wanted to have music that really related to Sunja in her happiest form, which we only mm. hear, we only hear twice. And that's sure. literally when she's with her dad in episode one, and at the very end when she's selling kimchi in episode eight. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that you're always approaching that, but you never get it because her life is miserable. And, but also beautiful and all these other things. And then there was music that related to Solomon specifically when he was like thinking back, right? So it's, it's music about him remembering. Um, and then there's music that relates to Hannah and there's music, but, but it's not themes, right? It's not kind of Wagnerian, but it's, it's sort of music that haunts them. It's music that's like on their skin sure. that they bring, they bring through. So that, that really, um, opened that was the kind of the key to make it okay um so that when when we got to these sequences and that was the thing when i read the script and i remember there, there were a couple of sequences in episodes episode six where i thought okay this is gonna be really hard yeah like how how am i gonna go from you know like everyone being you know peasants in the teens to like the business class lounge at the airport to sure. you know <laughs> I guess you know to to this and then and then like she's randomly on a boat and the, you know and you you think not only how am I going to deal with it but how is an audience going to deal with it like and the and the score is kind of all that you've got in those in those moments right so it's sure you know and and I say I, I should I should also point out it's the score it's sound design it's the way that things overlap it's it you know it was a big team effort to make it to make it cohere right um and so you you've kind of hinted at this a little bit in talking about a translation um, versus um, what they've done with the series. One of the things that I imagine having read the book before you started doing this would be kind of jarring is it was told very linearly in the book. And then once you got to the series, they're kind of like almost this is us style jumping between time periods and doing that. And so as a composer, that seems like that, that would be, that would be hard. But like in one of the scenes um, there's a song called packing. And there's a there's a, a, a sequence of different people packing. Yeah, and so right. to your point about not wanting to try to have different music in different time periods, and, like you had to have just that linkage exactly. between all of that, that was that was the sequence that when I read it, I thought that was the, that was actually what I was, what I was talking about. And that was, you know, interestingly, I'd set myself up for being it being OK, because there are so many little gestures that go into that, you know, that's that scene that montage is a big kind of vessel into which I put kind of. Sure scraps from all over the place and then I made the kind of weird decision to end with a end with a version of um the the one of the hardest things to get right was when Hansu sees her for the first time at the end of episode one and end with this kind of radiant version of that as if to say you know these are the these are the that's the moment where the ship gets pushed off the dock emotionally, right? Not, sure. not just when she, when she leaves. And so, you know, it was a slightly risky thing, but then we saw it against picture. We were like, okay, like that's, that totally works. <laughs> but um, yeah, that sequence, that sequence was really hard. And, and it was, um, you know, again, something that was, that was slightly crazy about this process was not being in the same room. Um, sure. And, and, you know, that would have made it a lot, easier to have these conversations and then doing it like this which is so surreal um, sure you know because if you can't really look at anyone and, and it's you know you're like do they hate it you know like all those little subtle yeah. gestures that, that, tell, that tell you if, what, what people are actually thinking or totally missing over this piece sure. of technology um so you, you talked about the song i actually want to ask you about kimchi 
Um, when was the first time you had it and how delicious was it? The first time I had kimchi, I must have been, I don't know, like 10 years old. <laughs> it's like, I am, um, yeah. And, and it's like, well, weirdly, um, I'm, I'm from Vermont originally, but went to high school in Providence, went to school in Providence. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a version of like well-meaning white people who are very interested in like getting to know the food of other places. Sure. Um, and my, my, my father in specific is one such person. So the, the fridge sort of in top back is filled with various fermented ideas from the world, the world over. Um, but also, also I, I went to Juilliard and I had so many, so many Korean friends and Korean American sure. friends. And that was very much a part of the kind of standard, standard, um, you know, and if you live in New York, it's like you, you absolutely it's not, melting pot. All those, things, all those things stop feeling, stop feeling, um, feeling odd. Interestingly though, I mean, of course in the, in the, if you listen to, if you, I'm, I think, I think the scene is still in there, but it's like when, when they're, when they're bullying, um, when they're bullying the, the, uh, the, the, the boy and they say that you know, it's like garlic breath boy or whatever. And, and, you know, they break his glasses in school. Oh, say, Noah's friend. I can't remember um, his, I can't remember his name, but yeah, I think it was you know, Noah's friend. And, yeah. and, and what's so fascinating about that is, you know, if you read, if you read accounts of people who grew up in the eighties or the nineties, mm-hmm. right. From not, and for themselves, you know, born, born in America with the immigrant parents who would go into school and everyone would be like, your food stinks, you know, and that, right. that's, you know, it's that, it's that form of like completely, um, I don't want to say casual racism, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a form it's a of microaggression. And yet it's such a macroaggression. If you think about, if you think about the, the way that food works, for instance, in this series, sure. where the, the way that she actualizes herself at the end of episode eight is through kimchi. It's through this thing that right. we've seen them make and through this ritualized sense of, you know, so it's kind of the, it's kind of the biggest aggression in a weird way where, you, where you're saying the relationship that you have with your mother smells you know and right. it's like and, it, and and you know when you think about that that scene when when her mom is is making it has done this unbelievable act of strange almost colonial resistance to get this white rice for the wedding yeah. and the whole thing the the and then you know the the two instances of white rice is an expression of like pure love or whatever that's what it comes down to when when you when you are telling someone that the food that their mom made them to send to school sure. smells funky right so i think i think so anyway that that's not specifically answering your question but that was something that i was thinking about you know that it's like those issues have not stopped and that's still something that we're dealing with um, sure. in the world absolutely um nico the last question i wanted to ask you is so if someone wanted to do what you do what kind of advice would you give to a young composer or somebody that was of the age where they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives I, so good things that happened to me always resulted from it always came out of me working with friends and just trying to see what other people around are doing and just being interested in other people's work and I think what if you're a young composer and you want to score films um you don't want to wait or tv or whatever whatever the next thing after film and tv is where it's probably like a you know sim card chip in your head yeah yeah exactly where apple's like hey um but you know, to instead of waiting for something to drop into your lap, find a person that you know, even friend of a friend who's making short films or who's making stuff on stuff on her iPhone or who's making, sure. you know, or who's who's 
you know, an editor on something and just get to get to know the work, get to know, get to know their vocabulary, get to know um, anything about anything about it and, and, and things will sort of magically happen. I will also say, and this is me being very old fashioned, if you're a young composer, um, that as much technical stuff as you can get, I, want, I don't wanna say out of the way, but get under your belt, um, you know, being able to notate your ideas, being able to communicate your ideas in language that musicians understand, um, being able to surround yourself with a team of people that you're comfortable with and feel like musical family, whatever you can do to, to get that started is really useful. So it's, it's not like you don't have to like go to conservatory or whatever, but it doesn't hurt. Sure. Um, but, but it's also, I think, I think there's, there are a lot of conversations that are worthwhile conversations, but about, you know, notation and kind of formal things being in some way, you know, gatekeeping between who has access sure. to things and who doesn't. And the answer is kind of sort of, because yeah. for me, those, those skills relate really specifically to how, you engage with other musicians. So it's not just sure. like, oh, you didn't write it out nicely, you suck. It's like, if you would like your session to start from a level of mutual understanding between you and the trombonist, it's not a bad thing to understand how the trombone goes and, and how, you know, how to notate the certain things that you want. And, sure. and the earlier that you do that, the less it'll feel like a chore and, and the more it'll feel like, I got this. That makes sense. Well, thank you for that. Nico, um, I want to say thank you. I appreciate you sitting down with me. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for your excellent questions. Oh, no, thank you. I, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, Pachinko is an excellent series and the music is great. So I had a really good time listening to the score after I watched it and while I was watching it. So congratulations on your success. And I look forward. You're coming back for season two, right? There's, there's, there's a season I hope so. two. I hope so. tell, you make, tell, tell Apple to call me. I'll I, I'm going to tell Apple to call you. Okay, so, great. <laughs> thank you. I talk to you soon. Legendary space ranger Buzz Lightyear embarks on an intergalactic adventure alongside ambitious recruits Izzy, Moe, Darby, and his robot companion, Sox. It stars Chris Evans, Kiki Palmer, and Taika Waititi. So, Lightyear is a cautionary tale about obsession and dwelling on the mistakes of the past rather than living in the now. As I frequently say, expectations are the thief of joy. While Lightyear is ultimately enjoyable as a family film, it feels like a bit of a letdown given the beloved franchise that it launched. It's missing that spark that made Toy Story special, and this wouldn't be an issue if you weren't always pointing at the screen every few minutes and shouting, he said the thing. Don't do that. Don't, don't point at the screen and shout when you're in the theater. Don't, don't do that. Evans, he's pitch perfect as Lightyear, and he's really great as the self-serious space ranger who, you know, is often made fun of by the folks around him, and it's, it's good. It's good to see him in this role. The rest of the cast, they do what they can uh, with what is ultimately a relatively ho-hum story. The standouts being Peter Sohn as Sox and Uzo Duba as Alicia, it's hard not to feel like there is a significant amount of wasted potential. So when you get to the end of the film, you might be thinking like, yeah, this is what I wanted them to be doing the whole time. I didn't need for Lightyear to be Toy Story. 
But what I did get, it didn't make me want to see more. It'll be fun for the kids, but the film's opening crawl suggests that this film, this movie that you're watching right now, or going to watch, or thinking about watching, or, okay, you're listening to me talk about it. This is the film that started Andy's love of Buzz Lightyear, the toy that he has throughout the Toy Story films. I just don't see it. Um, Adults who grew up with a version of this character, portrayed usually by Tim Allen, they'll likely walk away a little bit disappointed. Are they wrong for expecting more from a film about a fictional toy? Yeah, probably. Still, I'm in that category, and it's hard for me to give this film more than a B or a B minus. And so, that's it. Dear listeners, if you like what you heard and do all the socials, like, rate, comment, subscribe, share, we would definitely appreciate it. Also, LRM Online and the Genreverse have other great programs for your listening pleasure. Where else but LRMOnline.com and, of course, the Genreverse podcast work on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, we have a Discord channel. If you like Lightyear, if you didn't like Lightyear, Go ahead and drop us a line. If you had a chance to see Pachinko, get on there and tell us what you thought of the music and what you thought of the show. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, the next time you'll hear from me, I will be in the land of the morning call. So thanks for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Hasta lasagna, and don't get any of you. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.